This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, as we mentioned last night, it was an amazing night and a race to watch play out. Many states went back and forth all night long, especially ones like Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan. These were all battleground states that ended up being very important to the election uh, results. And in the end, Donald Trump became the 45th president of the United States after Receiving the concession call from Hillary Clinton at about 3 a.m., Donald Trump adjust. Uh, uh, he met with his supporters. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be president for all Americans, and this is so important to me. For those who have chosen not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people, I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. That's just part of the speech that Donald Trump gave early this morning. To recap what happened, we're joined here in studio by Ted Ruger, dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and also Eric Ortz, professor of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton School, also faculty director of the initial uh, in the initiative for global environmental leadership. Gentlemen, great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Good to see you. Uh, obviously, I, we talked before we went on the air. Surprise was obviously uh, quite a bit of, of what we all felt last night. Uh, what was maybe the key moment for you in, in watching this election process play out, Eric? Well, I think that the first sign of trouble for Clinton, as I was watching it, was that Virginia was so close. So you had uh, Tim Kaine, obviously, on the ticket. But the idea that you're going to have a nail-biter in Virginia was pretty tough. And then the loss of North Carolina was a bad sign because uh, after this huge rally, which actually attended in Philadelphia, uh, Clinton got on the plane and went down for a midnight rally in, in North Carolina. So I think they were hoping to be able to have that as a, as a bulwark. And then um, when Ohio went down and, and you started to see it close in Michigan, I yeah. think that was time, that was when I said, uh, this was looking pretty bad for the, uh, for the Clinton campaign. So that's, that, was, uh, that, that was my read on it. Ted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I had all of those reactions. Um, I was also on my laptop looking at the down-ballot Pennsylvania races. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly at the law school, we were very interested in the attorney general's uh, race. Um, and one thing that struck me and ended up being quite troubling for Hillary Clinton and Katie McGinty was uh, they uh, – Josh Shapiro, perfectly fine candidate – but and it was getting several hundred thousand more votes statewide. He ended up with, I think, over a million more votes statewide than either Clinton or McGinty. Right. And so all of the down-ballot candidates, who happened to be men, won in Pennsylvania. But Clinton and McGinty at the top of the ticket got about several hundred thousand um, fewer votes I get, uh, than, than those other candidates, which indicated something's going on. We can talk about it, what it was, but uh, there were a lot of people splitting their ticket and not voting at the top for, for Hillary or for McGinty. And the interesting thing in watching all of this play out last night, and obviously the, the, the kind of the key to victory for Donald Trump last night was rural. 
And there, I don't think there's much doubt about it. If you look at the Appalachia area, he did very well in, in Western Virginia and won West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee. And then obviously, as you mentioned, the coal belt through Pennsylvania and, and Ohio and, and Michigan. I mean, he went after rural Americans. And then the other thing that stood out, and, I, and I, I think I mentioned to this to you, Eric, is the fact that after Hillary Clinton won the nomination to be the Democratic nominee for president, she did not go one time to the state of Wisconsin. Which I think she and, may have gone twice, but well, but, still, but like a lot but, of the reports was, that she she wasn't there. She was not there. Yeah, as, uh, yeah they. I, I think uh, you know. Well, there's always going to be uh, a lot of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking as as we're doing. I think like, if you look at the basic data, as I as I as I was hearing it. There are a couple of big factors. One is that the urban areas actually could have saved her, but they didn't. They were not motivated. They did not come out. Yeah. The um, younger vote was not mobilized as much as you saw, I think, in the Obama campaigns. Um, the other big factor was that there's a, what people are calling the missing mi- white male vote that came out. Um, there was uh, uh, a lot of people have been saying, well, it's the non-educated guys <laughs> who are yeah. white guys out there. But in fact, if you look at the final numbers, college educated uh, category in general went for Clinton, but that includes people of color. Uh, if you just say, look at uh, white voters only, uh, Trump won 49% to 45%. Uh, I'm sorry, Clinton, uh, Clinton won 49 to 45 but college educated white males, it was 54% for Trump. So that's college-educated white males were um, were his ticket. And to combine with that, I think surprisingly, given some of the things Trump said, uh, Clinton didn't make up the gains in women. She got actually you know about the same percentage of women as Obama had. She got fewer black voters percentage-wise, yep. and she got significantly fewer Latino voters. Despite all of Trump's rhetoric, uh, Obama did much better with them four years ago. Yeah, and there was a huge ground game in uh, Philadelphia to get out the vote. But if you look at the final yeah. numbers in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, in uh, in 2012, the total electorate of African Americans percentage was 13 percent. This election, it was down to 10 percent. So some of that is maybe not getting the turnout. You, it was not, it was not as inspiring to to vote for Clinton. There yeah. was there maybe were some effective. Um, ads with respect to some things that she had said before, support of the crime bill way back when, et cetera. So there might have been baggage that dampened that. But then there's also the uh, the denominator that you had a lot of people who were white men in Pennsylvania who were more motivated by Trump, and they came out and, and made the difference. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON. You can give us a call right now, 844-942-7866. Your thoughts on what happened last night in the presidential election? What were some of the key moments that you thought as a voter in the election last night? 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. It's interesting. Florida was kind of the first state that was the great focus last night. And I think every network spent, what, probably an hour and a half, maybe two hours looking at, at, at Florida and how it it basically played out almost exactly like 2000, didn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, we were waiting just like in 2000 uh, for Broward County and some of the big Democratic counties. And I think um, inflected with probably the mainstream media's expectation that Clinton would win, the commentators on TV and those of us watching were thinking, well, there'll be enough votes there to push her over the top. And yeah. turns out uh, there weren't quite enough votes. Uh, Trump did better in, as I think he did in suburban, or kind of ex-urban Philadelphia. He did, 
Yeah, he didn't just win the rural counties. He won the kind of uh, ex-urban, ex suburban counties that, that Obama had carried over Romney. I guess in Florida's case, it was Tampa, St. Petersburg. Yeah. Uh, want, went much more for Trump than it had for Romney. Aaron? So, uh, similar, I agree, and similar examples you see in Michigan and in Wisconsin where uh, Obama had carried these areas uh, previously mm -hmm. and uh, and Trump won them this time. And I think so that's, well, a, that's an interesting flip is that yeah. you think about Obama, but you know, mm -hmm. there were a lot of people that were supportive of the Obama agenda and they flipped to Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and closer to home, I think Bucks County was about 50-50. Yeah. yeah, here in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned the down ballot, uh, uh, the effect that it had on down ballot. Obviously, uh, Toomey here in Pennsylvania, Senator, uh, was behind for a good portion of the night, and he seemed to get that that last hour or two swell, uh, kind of riding the coattails of Donald Trump. There were one or two other Senate seats that, that kind of played out that uh, that way as well. It is kind of amazing, and, and obviously this plays out every four years, but it seemed like it had even a more more of an impact this time around than, than we've seen in the past. And maybe that was all of the attention that was happening about the presidential race to begin with, but people like Toomey and, and other senators just kind of rode the wave of what happened in a lot of states over the course of the evening. Yeah, I think that the down ballot story is is uh, is is ambiguous because you, you could look at a state like North Carolina where there were a lot of key races and there was a kind of a Republican sweep. Yep. I think ironically, despite all the predictions, Trump probably helped the Republican candidate for Senate there and governor and attorney general. In Pennsylvania, what we see is this remains a fundamentally Democratic state um, in that the, the, the Democratic statewide candidates not named Clinton or McGinty won pretty comfortably, you know, three, four, five point margins. And uh, um, we have to analyze what was going on at the top of the ticket. Um, was there some gender bias? I think sure. that's something yeah. we have to ask that. Was there, was it the ad money that came in against McGinty? Um, but uh, we, you know, by and large, Pennsylvania remained blue in the, the races that didn't get the headlines. There were obviously uh, you had Gary Johnson and Jill Stein in this as well, and and Evan McMullen out in in Utah as well. And Evan McMullen made a you know his own impact in that state, even though he ended up coming in third. He still got about the same amount of uh, of votes as as Hillary Clinton did. Uh, how much of an impact do you really think Gary Johnson was? in the voting in some of these states, because he did, he did pull two, three, four percent in several states. I don't know how much impact that ended up being when you factor that in with Trump and Clinton, maybe a little bit in some cases, but obviously there was an impact there. Yeah, I don't know how much to how much weight to put on this because uh, I think someone like the Johnson candidacy took from both sides probably. I think okay. there were, I mean, one obvious uh, problem of this uh, or, or, or point of reality of this election is that you had two of the most unpopular candidates in the history of modern politics in the United States. So then I think some of the third party was just people opting out or people staying home. Uh, it looked like, if I looked at the numbers, I think recently, if you just take this very small amount that Jill Stein got, I think it's less than 1%, it was almost close to making a difference. So you could, yeah. you could, if it all, and those would have all flipped over. And I think that was a challenge that the Clinton campaign had is, is getting the Bernie Sanders enthusiasts on board. And I'm not sure everybody did get on board. Uh, and some of those probably went to uh, to third parties, but I think the larger story, though, is what happened in uh, how do you, in the in the in the in the big parts of the country that turned red, including the what used to be called the blue wall of yep. Pennsylvania, Ohio, 
uh, Wisconsin, Michigan. And part of that is globalization and the fact that a lot of people have been hit. A lot of manufacturing jobs have been lost over the years. The recession that um, 2008-2009 recession and what happened after that, that people saw the uh, Wall Street guys basically getting bailed out. Nobody was really taking responsibility for it, people losing their houses, losing their jobs, and that that recovery, which we can do, say statistically, yes, there's some job growth, there's been job growth, et cetera, but a lot of those basic manufacturing jobs that people had, had, I think founded their lives on and, and really felt a lot of self-respect. That there was a dry, there was an anger that sure. we had yep. seen in this in the middle parts of the country that I think were, it was the real story. Well, not only was there anger about that, but there was just anger at, at government in general. And I don't think there was much doubt about it. Whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, I think you felt a little uneasy going into this election, especially with the way things played out, because of the fact that there were so many people out there that have kind of reached, and obviously Donald Trump being elected, I think, tips to this, they've reached that breaking point with with how government at times does not treat them very well. Yeah, I mean, the, the polling I saw after the fact said that the, the single variable that voters cared most about was making a change. Yeah. That was more important than the economy, more important than national security. And among voters who prioritized making a change, 83% went for Trump. So this was a angry vote. It was a change vote. Um it remains to be seen how how this translates into governance, but uh, there was a it was a protest vote. So then one of, one of the things, just one other point on that. One of the things driving this, I think, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Jeffrey Green, who's in political science here, has an analysis of uh, fairness in the in in, in politics. Yeah. And uh, one way to describe what we've just seen is is something you might call the revenge of the plebs. It's only a little bit, only at certain moments in history, such as big elections like this, do most ordinary people have a ability to express anger, frustration, sure. et cetera. And I think that those pe- you know, Hillary Clinton, for those people, was the establishment candidate, yeah. to, and Trump was the protest candidate. Now you're right. Now what <laughs> is uh, what do we what do we get? What what are the dangers? I'm very concerned that, that about the dangers now that we have at least. Trump has indicated um, a problematic view with respect to the rule of law on some things, and right. so I'm a little worried. What, what's he going to do if he's uh, uh, if he's challenged in that respect? Uh, uh, freedom of the press. Uh, he's uh, he's suggested at least that he's ready to change the um, well, libel laws and et cetera, I know with, on that. And, and I know and, with uh, you, it's also the, the, the issues surrounding uh, global warming as well, because he does not believe that that is now you know, a problem. I mean, we're going to have. I think we uh, he's increased my. Uh, my resolve to have a conference next on the dysfunctional world that we are probably going to now head into because I believe he's going to keep that campaign promise. That was a pretty strong one. Yeah. If the U.S. actually comes out of the Paris Agreement, you're losing. Already, a lot of people are saying that the Paris Agreement doesn't really go far enough. But if you lose le- U.S. leadership yeah. and you lose the possibility of uh, deals with China on this, uh, we are probably oh, – we're almost certain now to face extremely severe consequences uh, within a few decades. And so we now have to start thinking, what is that going to look like? And it's not – it's uh, a wall is not going to solve the problem, I'm afraid. There, but what you're going to have massive refugee flows. You're going to have challenges to democratic government. You're going to have military challenge. You know, the, the problems you now see in Europe are going to be nothing compared to what you're, uh, what's coming. Uh, there are going to be wars over water. 
uh, food. So I think that that is a that's a I mean that is a big concern that I have that we've lost and that was not even a campaign issue. One of my pet peeves was that on every debate there was never one question about climate change or environmental right. issues in general, and I think that was a, uh, that was a failure of the media because if you look at most polls, I think most. Most Americans now believe that this is a problem and you have to start to do something. Now, one, one takeaway for me there is that you are no longer going to be able to say, well, Obama will take care of whatever we're going to do on that. And people have to get mobilized in some other ways. Businesses have to get, have to get serious about it, et cetera. You have to think about how do you solve this uh, large problem in other ways than relying on the federal government. But it's a big setback. Tim, where are the, where are the areas that, that you look at right now in terms of, uh, of this country that really need to be focused on by Donald Trump? Because as Eric just brought up, there are so many things that are going to be in play here over the next few years. Uh, there have already been comments by you know some people about what are the things that he wants to focus on in the first 100 days, which obviously ends up becoming very important for a president. But you sit here. What do you, what do you say? Well, I mean, there's there's almost no end to the key issues and, and no end to, of the questions of how he'll deal with them. Uh, obviously, so I you know think about health care and the Affordable Care Act, which you know I, I think it bears saying will not be repealed under the kind of current political landscape we see. It's very difficult to repeal a statute, but uh, but it's uh, I think its functioning, which was already somewhat wobbly, is clearly in trouble with now somebody in the White House and controlling the executive branch. Who doesn't support it? And so, in terms of funding the exchanges and and making the fixes that the statute needs to function properly, I think I'm pessimistic about that. Um, you know, the other thing, and this Trump is such an uncertainty on this way is, you know, every president gets to appoint thousands, you know, of really key political appointees sure. into the federal executive branch. It's not just the one person in the White House. It comes a whole government comes yep. with with the president and. We have no idea what kind of individuals he'll appoint. It, it uh, um, you know, there'll be a lot of lot of interesting choices being made over the next few months. Um, you know, the other point that, of course, is important, and here we have more certainty really than any presidential electee ever, is vis-a-vis -vis the Supreme Court. So this is really a portentous election for the Supreme Court. There are slim majorities on things like abortion rights, on affirmative action. Um, which I think with a couple of President Trump appointments are in jeopardy. But I think with this is one area where Trump has done something no other president candidate uh, has. He's given us a list of 21 names of people he says he'll appoint to the Supreme Court. Of course, he's not bound to stay on that list. But right. what do we know from that list? It's actually surprisingly <clears throat> conventional. It's the kind of list that Ted Cruz might have put out. Conventional, uh, well-qualified judges who happen to be very, very conservative. So he's not, I think he's, he will, you know, he may be a moderate, he may be a kind of pro-business centrist, uh, but certainly with his Supreme Court appointments, appointments, we would predict that he'll go very conservative. And who's probably at the top of his list, you think? You know, I don't know. He gave us 20 names, yeah. but the, the names are names like uh, Ray Kethledge, who's a Sixth Circuit judge in Detroit, uh, Ray Grunder, who's an Eighth Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals judge in, in St. Louis, right. um, some state Supreme Court justices. So these tend to be well-pedigreed judges who are already on the bench um, who happen to be quite conservative. So it's uh, – we, you know, he's not going to bring uh, Judge Judy to the Supreme Court, you know. Um, <laughs> what about least, his sister? <laughs> yeah, no. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. It, it was interesting that uh, after 
uh, he uh, accepted victory. We played the clip of uh, of Donald Trump, and he seemingly has been more calm and reserved in the last few weeks uh, in in preparing for this, and seemingly was last night. We kind of talked about it before we came in here, in that the, the Donald Trump we saw in the early parts uh, of this presidential race, the very you know loud and boisterous, and you know throwing all kinds of ideas out there. That's 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 a Donald Trump that can't work as as president. And, maybe, and, maybe they'll maybe the Twitter account will remain silent. Uh, but uh, well, but the um, I think uh, one I, I've been trying to think of notes of optimism because I think if you look at a lot of what he said during this campaign, if he really believes a lot of the stuff that he said in terms of um, anti women comments or racist comments, uh, anti immigrant xenophobic comments, yeah, then it's. Then we're in a very dangerous world. Now, I was—I think that my uh, more optimistic. I'm trying to find some uh, room for optimism, and I think one place is that uh, if you look at Donald Trump, one thing seems to be true is that he wants to be successful. He does not yeah. want to fail. And if he pursues a lot of his policies, a lot of economists have said, you are going to crater the economy. You're going to create unemployment. You're going to have massive deficits. I don't think. It, I think that he is a, a, a an intelligent individual. Um, he w- he will say almost anything to get um, elected, but I, my, yeah. my my optimistic take on that is that is what Harry Frankfurt has called bullshit, which is a philosophically respectable <laughs> term now, which means that you say almost anything without any regard to the truth, but what you think will influence things. So if we put a lot of the things that he's said in that category, then uh, I think there's hope. That he will want to be successful, and that he'll, you know, to the point of uncertainty of who he's going to appoint to very important offices uh, in his administration, that he will be listening, trying to do things that are going to not create the economy. And he said he wants to make America great again, and throwing things into uh, a lot of uh, that that includes not uh, heading us into another recession in 2017. Well, the last thing also is, is the fact that, uh, you know, he is obviously it's, it's unique in that he is not a politician and he is an active businessman going into this. You know, he has talked about putting his company in trust while he is running the presidency. Uh, the last thing he wants to do, whether he is in office for four years or eight years, whatever that may be, the last thing he wants to do is burn a lot of bridges where his personal brand is affected in four years or in eight years, whatever it is. So, I mean, I, I think it goes to what you were saying right now is that he's very conscious of what he probably will do or won't do so that he looks the best he possibly can down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that we're essentially saying it's a good thing that he doesn't stick to what he said. It's a good thing that <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that, yeah. I think there's a lot of people thinking this that uh, uh, <clears throat> if he does want to succeed, he may take a more centrist path, and uh, you know, and maybe not stick with some of the things that he said. I will say, if if we look at what the voters said last night, um, you know, they they weren't fully on board with the the far right or the Trump uh, platform. Right. You know, so. Um, you know, you mentioned the marijuana referendum that carried in several key states. You, uh, uh, right to die legislation carried in one or two states, we yep. think, or came close. Um, the other, um, very straight out of Bernie Sanders' platform, uh, mandatory minimum wage laws right. in the states. So, yep. you know, again, if we view this as a protest vote, it seems to be about the kind of working class angst as much as the p- specific policies that Trump uh, 
spoke about on the stump. Your opportunity to call us at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Your comments about what happened last night in the election. Let's go to Nashville, Tennessee. Ken joins us. Ken, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, I enjoy listening to you guys, by the way. It's the first time I've ever caught your show on the radio, so thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, great. I yeah, hope you, hope you uh, keep us tuned in. Well, I'll be back. Well, well, look, I'm a... I'm a 62-year-old white guy, okay? So I'm, I'm one of those, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I'm a high school dropout, and both my parents were high school dropouts, and I'm the only one who went to college, and my wife's the only one in her family who went to college. And so, uh, you know, the whole white privilege thing sort of aggravates us when we feel basically we've worked our asses off to get where we are over the last 40 years. Uh, I'm, I, my vote yesterday for Trump was not pro-Trump. One of you just said it. Uh, I'm sick of the Republican and the Democratic parties both. I don't really think either party establishment looks out for the interests of the country. They look out to preserve their own interests and those that are in their camp. I think they're both equally guilty of crony capitalism. It just gets expressed in different ways. And so I looked at Clinton, I looked at Trump, and I said, you know, we can't keep going this way. And I didn't care for either of them. I a long time with going libertarian because I lean that way a little bit, but that didn't make sense. So in the end, I walked in, I pulled the lever for Trump, you know? And um, you know, I call myself when people talk to me about politics, politics, I say, look, I consider myself to be a socially conscious fiscal conservative, okay? Right. Yep. I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want no government, and I don't think we should throw, you know, just the whole governmental structure out. But, but we can't do everything for everybody. We have to have some sort of fiscal sense about us, and we pe- appear to have lost that completely. So I know I'm kind of rambling on here, you guys, but yeah. the people that I talk to, not only in my age bracket, and not just from Tennessee, but, you know, I say stuff like this, and they say, they say yeah, you know, right. somehow Trump tapped, tapped into that. But. Ken, I, Ken I, think, I think you hit on something, and thanks very much for the call. And, and I would be interested to know how many people out there basically had the same sentiment as what Ken just basically laid I, out. I think it was, uh, it was really an excellent call, and then it expressed, uh, I think, a, a lot of the motivation of the demographics that we've been talking about. And, uh, and that was, uh, I think that was a difficulty for the Democrats. It would have been interesting if you had... Uh, Sanders against uh, in this uh, area because he would have been the uh, anti, you would have had two anti-establishment candidates. Sure, uh, he would have had his own. Uh, but that you know that's a what-if game. I think it's definitely uh, expressive of a feeling that many people have had that the establishment is not paying attention to yeah. really big parts of the country. And if you look at the run-up, I was I was kind of as we were talking about the reactions, I was seeing votes in places like Tennessee. Uh, uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, where the margins were just massive, right? I mean, yep. it's not wasn't anything close. Yep. And so, the I think the caller expresses a anger and a dis- disillusion that many people are feeling in lots of parts of the country who feel uh, who feel like globalization and the East Coast elites have uh, left them behind. Ted. Yeah, and look, I want to be honest. As as dean of university of an Ivy League law school, I think we are part of the. East Coast elite, you know, that sure. was taken by surprise. It's already got me thinking about ways in talking with our students and our faculty how we can connect more with people like uh, Ken and uh, and and the people who are, you know, right now perhaps uh, uh, not visible enough as we talk about legal reform and, and economic reform. You know, we do uh, 
we do tens of thousands of student pro bono hours in the Philadelphia area. Right. We were already thinking of expanding to, to Allentown and Scranton and getting our law students doing legal aid type work more outstate in Pennsylvania. This just emboldens me to do more of that because we got to get our students here connected with people who are, you know, in these red counties and have them realize that, you know, this is a country where there's lots of angst and lots of frustration. And if they're going to be leaders, they need to tap into hmm. and, and communicate with that, not just in this university community. I'd, I'd say the same thing with respect to the Wharton School. Um, well, for one thing, we now have a, uh, a graduate of the Wharton School who's in the Oval <laughs> Office. But the truth is that there hasn't been a lot of enthusiasm for his candidacy, um, even I think the Republican uh, st- you know, student groups have been divided, et cetera. Yep. But yep. Um, I think the same thing is true, that we need to get out of our bubble a little bit and look at, um, uh, look at what are the effects of globalization, uh, what, it, what, what is happening with economic inequality, which is fueling a lot of the anger, I think. Uh, and um, that's a, that's a wake-up call. Ken, thanks very much for the call. Greatly appreciate it. Gentlemen, great to see you again. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you both. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Ted Ruger, who is uh, Dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Eric Ortz, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.